0: So I need to pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you for this time that we have together in a world filled with so much chaos and vitriol and divisiveness. Thank you for this, this morning that we have to come together and to proclaim the good news that you brought to us, to proclaim it to one another. Lord God, we pray for the one who um, who teaches this morning, for you know that her sins are many. All these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So a few months ago, I was doing exactly what I'm doing right now. I was uh, leading a church retreat, and I was standing in front of a group of people. I was hoping to remind myself and them of the goodness of of God's love and forgiveness and mercy. And the weird thing about doing this is that you never really know how it goes. So you do it and then like you hope it went well. And I felt like it went well. I showed a clip from New Girl. I made some (laughs) jokes. It was over. (laughs) This guy waits for the room to clear out and he comes up to me and he's like, hey, that was great. And then he leans in quietly and goes, you don't actually believe this shit, do you? (laughs) It was, like, by far my favorite question. I was so honest. Um, So today, it is my job to tell you that, uh, yes, I do believe this shit. And um, I apologize to anyone who, like my father, has a hard time hearing me say that word. Um, So I want to say start, actually, by offering a brief moment of testimony. Um, I feel like there are probably enough Baptists, current, or former in the room that you guys can handle it. Um, if this were a room full of New England Episcopalians, um, I would be telling you my story, maybe, but um, But this ain't bedtime, I'm not tucking you in, so um, I'm not here to tell you a story. Um, I'm here to tell you about sin and redemption in my own life. So, I want to talk about the message of reformational theology, of a theology we talk about a lot um, at Mockingbird, one that we clearly see through scripture, um, a theology of the cross, because it points to Jesus in a way that clearly saved my life. And I also want to tell you why we all hate this theology, and we avoid it at all costs. So um, in my first year at Yale Divinity School, um, I made one of the dumber decisions of my adult life. I decided that we should have our first child. My husband and I had waited a while to have a baby, and we thought, this is the moment. The the problem is that, you know those seminaries, some of you may have gone to one of those seminaries, where it's like a bunch of dads standing around, and they've got like baby Bjorns and um, Starbucks coffee, and they're, they're talking about how much they love Calvin. Well, Yale is not that seminary, okay? So... When I got pregnant, I suddenly looked around and realized I'd never seen another pregnant student on campus. In fact, when I was 10 weeks pregnant and no one knew I was pregnant, I was sitting in the computer lab and all these young women were like, you know what would be terrible? <laughs> if you had a baby in seminary. I was like, oh, no. Um, at some point, I stopped fitting into the desk. I said here that I put on fifty pounds in pregnancy, so I stopped fitting into the desk, and they didn't know what to do with me. Right? They were like, we, "Could you sit in a chair?" We don't like, we don't know. We never had one of this in our midst, and it wasn't better after I had our son because then I rolled in there with my breast pump, and I was like, "Hey, so I'm gonna need somewhere." And they were like, could you use your car? And I was like, you know what, Yale Divinity School, you know there's like 562 rooms we have designated as safe spaces? And I'm one of those, like without, because I'll do this safely, I promise. So, I'm going to get to Jesus. Okay. So all. To say that by the time our child was um, about a year old, I was completely ready to drop out of seminary. Um, I had a spiritual director who's actually an Anglican monk in New York, and he's he since died. And um, Andrew, a blessed memory. And I remember sitting with Brother Andrew and saying, I'm done. I'm not gonna be ordained. This stuff makes me tired. No one knows where I'm coming from. I'm done. I kept being told that I needed to work harder, that I needed to find a specific social justice program yes. to really dig into. You know, uh, that Jesus was going to require me to plant an urban garden. If I heard one more lecture. About <laughs> Farm people in Mississippi, like all these people are like let's to an urban garden. I'm like, do you know how hard that is? Like I got out of Mississippi and now y'all are telling me I got to play crops. Like I'm not doing that. Um, there's no way the Lord was asking me to plant cabbage in Chicago. Like that was not possible, right? Um, And I was sitting in the library one afternoon, uh, and I was telling a good friend of mine that I was done. I was ready to drop out. I was done. (laughs) And this friend says to me, he says, Hey, there's this crazy conference called Mockingbird, and it's in New York City, and you should go. And this is a direct quote. He says it's stuff you'll never hear at seminary. (laughs) So I go to my first conference and I hear the Reverend Aaron Zimmerman speak. He spoke for us here last year. Um, And this is basically his talk. People are bad. Christians are people. Christians are bad. (laughs) And we're all saved by God's grace. And I was like, what? Like, Um, It felt like someone was finally, like, acknowledging the reality of my life. It felt like someone was finally telling me the truth. Um, According to my (laughs) seminary education and to a lot of mainline theology we hear these days, people are not bad. No, no, no. People are awesome. People are amazing, right? We're all good vibes, good thoughts, good deeds. Need more evidence? Just... Watch the news, right? (laughs) This, of course, means that um, Christians are even better people. That was always the message I, I seem to get in seminary and that we hear in Mainland theology. Christians are even better people. I mean, it's like, while we might still be people, we've somehow transcended personhood, right? We're aliens now. We are enlightened beings who think positively and love life and, have like amazing Instagram feeds. It's shameful how, like, it took me like three seconds to find this. And for the record, I'm not one of these women. I did not make this list. Um, but there are women on there, and this is what we do, right? We project this image. So, this is why reformational theology, the stuff that we talk about a lot, is the theology that we love to hate. Christians especially love to hate it, I think. Because it reminds us that we have actually transcended nothing. Mm. Right? Our theology tells us we are saved by the blood of the Lamb because our sin haunts us, follows us, and would kill us if it weren't for Jesus. We know that Satan prowls like a lion and that we needed the sacrifice of a Lamb to save us from our wretched state. This theology tells the truth. And the truth hurts, but that does not make it any less true. So i want to go through some theological words that we love to hate. Words that um, we throw around actually a lot at Mockingbird. And I I want to do this because these words have been such a profound gift to me. They have shaped the way that I view the world, the way that I'm a mother, the way that I'm a wife, that I'm a daughter, so... I'm going to start with a word that I'm—I'm I'm kind of a one-woman army for bringing back into everyday usage a phrase, <clears throat> and this phrase is low anthropology. So, you know how when someone dies and everyone says really nice things about them immediately afterwards, but then like a couple years pass and the truth comes out? Like in my family, which is like a lot of repressed Southern Baptists, it's like, Aunt Ethel wasn't that great. You know, like she drank a lot of whiskey and yelled at people. Like that's our, that's what happens after you die in our family. So when I die and after Years have passed. Um, people will say Sarah wasn't that great. She was such a Debbie Downer. She wouldn't shut up about having a low anthropology, <laughs> and I will say mission accomplished. Okay, so everyone has an anthropology. It's a big word, but everyone has an anthropology, which is to say a way that we think about people. Okay, so in- theologically, we either think of ourselves as being inherently good. And totally in control of our sin, which means we have a high anthropology, or we live in reality, right? And we know that people may want to be good, but that they are inherently sinful, right? That people cannot escape their sin. St. Paul wrote, I do the thing that I do not want to do, okay? So I have a low anthropology, duh, um, Basically, I think that human beings cannot escape the pervasive darkness of their soul. I'm so fun at dinner parties, like (laughs) you know. I actually have friends that say to me, they're like. They're like, I like the stuff you say, but like, you're really hard on people. And i like, yes, I am! You know, like, not letting up. Um, so, do you guys know the Babylon Bee?
1: Yeah, it's so funny. So,
0: it's satirical. It's parody. It's like the Christian onion. So, I know it is safe with the Babylon Bee. There's one, I should have this written down, that I love. Like, scientists, um, like, they treat Episcopalians like they're an endangered species. And they're like... Scientists recently discovered, you know, that we thought that they were completely extinct. Anyway, no one thinks that's funny as an Episcopalian, but I think it's hilarious. Okay, so, but this is the one I love. Um, scientists still unable to locate man's innate goodness. Okay. During. A In a recent interview with a national science journal, researchers intently stared into a high-powered microscope, furrowing their brows, as they looked over yet another piece of the human body at the cellular level. But they remained unsuccessful in their attempt to find proof that every person is born morally upright. We thought we found it a few months back. I love this. But that turned out to be a dark, sinful nature infecting the tissue we were there working with. <laughs> and then the doctor goes on to say, same results we've always gotten, right? So I, I will make a, a bit of a case for you regarding low anthropology. And this this is just some of the newsreel from the past year. Um, Syrian refugees... Right, cannot seem to find a place to live. We all saw the photograph of that little boy's body on the beach, and most of the world's countries are like, no, we're good, we're good, right? I mean, that's that's us. That's humanity right now, right? Um, Last fall, there was an epidemic of (coughs) adults, grown folks, dressing like clowns to try to scare children. I had a complete plan about how I was going to get in my station wagon, because that is what I drive. And if I saw a clown in front of my child's school, I was just going to run over it at full force with my car. And you would think that the fact that my children go to school or my husband is a pastor would have stopped me. But I just figured I could go in and say, confession. And we're good. Like, I have a system worked out for this, right? And I don't want to get too political here, but um, this guy also ran for president. So I just... Let's keep that in mind with our current state of things, okay? But my low anthropology... I'm just going to keep this up for a while. Um, My low anthropology doesn't just live out there. I wish it did. But it lives in here, too. So, um... You know how when you're running late for church and you're yelling at everyone and you're saying terrible things, right? And um, it occurs to you that you did this last Sunday and last Sunday you were like, never again. I'm not going to yell at my kids. I'm going to get up early. We're going to be together. And yet here you are, right? Right. And you start yelling at your kindergartner because all you want him to do is put on a freaking polo shirt, right? But he's not going to do it. And so you proclaim him like a lost cause. You've given up all hope. And you look at your two-year-old daughter who um, you can put in front of Doc McStuffins and basically get to do anything, right? So I, I'll i put her in front of Doc McStuffins, she turns into a zombie, I'll get her diaper, which is like, she's been in it way too long. I'll get her diaper, I'll throw it on the carpet, you know, get her in like something smocked, and then we'll rush off to church, right? And then I get to church and I think... Was, did that diaper land face up or face down on the carpet and then I think, did I wash my hands right, and um, I'll look at my son and he'll be in a swimsuit and then I'll want to yell at everyone all over again, but you're at church, right? So you gotta hide the ugly, you know. You gotta kind of keep that. You don't want people to know, right? Next time that scenario or whatever version of that scenario is in your life happens, there's a word for that—a phrase, low anthropology, right? You know who had a really high anthropology? The Pharisees, they had a really high anthropology. Um, they thought they could follow the letter of the law and lead perfect lives. They didn't need Jesus, right? They had willpower. Um, so in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and basically asks, Lord, like, how do I follow you? How do I love you? And Jesus says... You must be born again, right? Now we've taken this a lot of different ways in the church. In Mississippi, are you born again is a question we had to fill out on the SATs, <laughs> which is so funny. It's such a joke because we didn't take the SATs in Mississippi. We going to to and, um, my husband was when I have told him that. Anyway. Um, being born again phrase doesn't point to accepting our rented estate for what it is. I mean, is that being born again is really seeing ourselves for who we are? Are we willing to be honest about our powerlessness over sin? Our Alcoholics Anonymous brothers and sisters take their first step and they declare their powerlessness over alcohol and they proclaim their lives unmanageable. As I sit with my children on Sunday morning, am I willing to admit that I cannot manage my life? So back to Nicodemus, right? Jesus goes on to say to him, this is at verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. So I love, I mean, it always knocks me over that this is the moment Jesus chose to pull that gem out, yeah. right? I and mean, he's talking to a, a leader of the Pharisees, and this is when he uses this verse. So he goes on to say, I'm going to skip a little bit here for time's sake, but at verse 19, and this is the judgment, That the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness. It's right there in scripture. A lower anthropology is, people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. Verse 21, but those who do what is true come to the light, so that it... May clearly be seen that their deeds have been done in God. I love that ending. Not that our deeds have been done in ourselves, in our willpower, in our high anthropology, but that our deeds have been done in God. Of course, we do not want to hear this about ourselves, we do not want to hear that we are the worst. We want to believe that we are capable of making the best choices, right? We want to believe that we can accomplish anything, um, that we can save the world. I find this line of thinking so much worse and so much harder and so much more depressing than just accepting my reality as a sinner. Having a high anthropology means being constantly dependent on ourselves and constantly disappointed by the outcome. What do we work with, right? When we're just depending on ourselves? Like what's our go-to function? Anger, jealousy, fear. Basically, when we are relying on we just function out of our own sin cycle. I mean that's that's what's happening. So if you hear someone telling you about how great humanity is For the love of all that is holy, if I have to see another post-bombing of somewhere cycle with that, I'm not going to use an expletive, but the articles that say 10 photos to restore your faith in humanity, I'm going to, I can't, I can't with that. I just, it just about said, I'm like, this is the problem to begin with because we all invested our faith. So how did we end up here you know anyway? So, okay. When your anthropology is low, then your Christology, or the way you view Jesus, is high. And I need that reality to get out of bed in the morning. Seriously. My low meets his high. So too often in Christianity, we believe we get a good, solid grip on what it means to be Christian. And um, then we can Okay, but... I mean, what can I do to make me better, right? Like, how can this work out for me? Um, which takes me to our next word. Uh, this is the quote I read from Paul. Sanctification. This is our next word we're going to talk about a little Okay. So this is what we think sanctification looks like. So this is a <laughs> biggest loser thing. i tried to cover her face a little bit, but anyway. And um, this is what sanctification actually looks like. So he's got, he's going well. He's on the outlet. He knows where he's going. He's headed up. Things are feeling good. Whoops. <laughs> somebody got cancer. Somebody cheated on somebody. Still being drug up, right? <laughs> That we are becoming more and more sanctified, which is to say, holier, right? Um, But like so much of God's creation and theology, the church takes the word sanctification and just poops on it, right? That's what we do with this word in church. Um, Because in our culture, in church culture, in our world, sanctified often means I have arrived at optimum holiness, right? And now... I need to tell everybody about it. For the record, that's not sanctification. Like that's that's you being an asshat. That's (laughs) That's right there. (laughs) To be honest with you, I think that trying to articulate sanctification is kind of trying to name the unnameable. It is this thing that has happened. And not something that we are necessarily good at seeing when it is taking place. So, um, according to St. Paul, sanctification sounds kind of terrible. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into this death? Being baptized into the death of Jesus does not sound like something we will necessarily achieve through having 30 minutes of quiet time with the Lord every morning. It sounds like suffering and hardship, Um, Martin Luther wrote in his small catechism that baptism indicates the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to life before God in righteousness and purity forever. So this is the Christian life, drowning. Right. This is the Christian life Dying daily to ourselves Um, It's not really what you see When you google like sanctified woman (laughs) Um, So we all want to believe That Christianity is an uphill trajectory And we've reached like the next rung On the ladder to righteousness Unfortunately for us Maybe Um, Christianity is not a cult Right Um, I kind of wish it was because I really feel like cults are easier than Jesus, right? Um, You wear a long dress and um, the men are typically in charge of making the money and the kind of cult I would join the men would be in charge of making the money. Um, I would get a couple wives, which I know we're all supposed to say is a bad idea, but um, I would have a system where like the next one that came in, where it was the latest one, would do all the laundry. So um, I've thought about this a lot, and I've watched those shows, so I'm, uh, anyway. So Christian sanctification is not a pyramid state of improvement. It is realizing that Jesus is present when we are suffering. Especially when we are suffering. There's this clip um, from the show The Crown. Do you guys know the show The Crown? Okay, good. When I'm in an Episcopal church, here, I was like, yeah! But, okay. So, you guys know, So It's about, hey, we gotta have what we can have in the Episcopal church, guys. Um, but the, it's, it's a show about Queen Elizabeth, if you don't know, okay? Um, and uh, This is, by far, my favorite character, um, King George. It's played by the actor Jared uh, Harris. So George, as many of you may know, was born with a severe stutter. He also came into power during what would be impossible circumstances. Um, There was the fact that his brother had to give up the crown, So George stepped in his place because his brother was having an affair with an American. Um, Or the fact that he came into power and then World War II hit, which I can't, I mean, I don't even know what that, I just can't imagine. So despite being a king, George did not have an easy life. So in this scene that I love so much that I'm going to show you guys, um, people from the village have come to sing, um, to the royal family, they've come to sing Christmas carols. Um, what you do not see happening is that King George has learned that his uh, his death from lung cancer, I believe it is, is imminent at this point, and his family has no idea. They know he's been sick, they know he's had surgery, but like a lot of daddies do, he's like, I'm fine, everything's fine, we're good, you know? Um, I can't imagine how he must be feeling in this clip. Um, I would guess sick and worthless, which for a king must be pretty horrific. Um, And I would bet at this moment, he's become more reflective about life, sin, and suffering. And he seems to feel like he's suffering alone in this moment. But he is not. So in this moment of loneliness and sadness and desperation, something amazing happens. Jesus shows up as a small child um, in I, I, an English countryside choir. <laughs> What did you say he calls that the, the moment where um, his wife claps the, the equivalent of um, the pastoral Kleenex? You know, when somebody's in your office crying and you're like, Could you stop? You know, like, just stop. Everybody's looking and they see how broken you are, right? Um, I just, I love these lyrics so much. What can I give him, poor as I am, if I were a shepherd? I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give him my heart. I feel like King George kind of becomes our modern day woman at the well in this moment. Um, You know what she says about Jesus in John uh, chapter four. She says, he told me all that I ever did. Sanctification means we aren't getting better on our own terms, but instead we are getting better on God's terms. Sanctification is not shouting to the rooftops that our relationship with Jesus is right on track. It is realizing that God is with us in our most desperate and miserable and seemingly least sanctified moments. I've always loved this passage Um, This is from Romans 5 St. Paul says More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings Knowing that suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character And character produces hope And hope does not put us to shame Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That sanctification, right? Suffering produces hope. Our need of Jesus makes our need of Jesus more known to us. So the last theological concept I want to talk about with you guys is uh, for many Christians, um, one of the most controversial But I want to spend a little bit of time talking with you about imputation. Um, It's a big word, but don't be afraid of it, um, because once you understand imputation, you will see it in every single area of your life. It will be all over the place. I believe that imputation is the linchpin of our faith. Um, I think it's also the reason why a Reformation-tinged Christian theology is so frustrating for people, is <laughs> so infuriating. Because the reason people are reluctant to accept gospel theology is this. People worry if we don't tell other people that they're earning their way into heaven, right? If they don't follow all the rules that we've laid out, then maybe they'll just give up on believing in Jesus altogether, right? Um, and then these mockingbird people, these reformational theology people come in, and and we speak against that. We just do. We're talking all relentless grace of God, total forgiveness of sins, Jesus paid it all, which if y'all are keeping count, that's the third time that has been said this morning. Um, and the rest of the church believe me, because I've had these conversations with the rest of the church, is like, where do you get off? Well, imputation is where we get off.
1: Um, <laughs> I was going to do. I wasn't sure if I could get away with it. So I was like,
0: ah. um, Just don't invite me back next year. <laughs> okay. Um, so, only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. Old Testament, right? Pointing, pointing to what is to come. Just as the Son of Many did not come did not come to be served, but to serve as a ransom for many. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his of God's grace. And of course the verse from Second Corinthians, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And then there's this guy who I did not read a lick of in my seminary education Martin Luther. I know, right? Me too. Yale loves me, they like me all the time to speak. JK! Um and am most persuaded and certain that this is the true opinion of the gospel and the apostles that only by a gracious imputation are we righteous before God. Christ imputed righteousness to us. Christ is our righteousness. So you guys already know imputation very well in your personal lives. Um, When we treat our kids badly, They act badly, right? It just, that's how it works. Um, When we treat our spouses like they are bad at cleaning or cooking or working or parenting. I'm that mom who, like, midway through disciplining a child, and I know I'm not supposed to do this, would be like, honey, do you really think that's a good idea? Like, in front of the kid, right? That works so well. Just hot tips from Sarah for parenting. Question the other parent in front of the child. Um... Yeah. So when we treat our spouses this way, they tend to act accordingly, right? Um, so from the very first fights my husband and I had, and we knew each other um, a year from the point we met to the point we got married, and only and we never lived together, right? Cause we righteous. Um, just kidding. (laughs) He's an Episcopal priest. That would have landed us in a lot of hot water. So anyway, um, he says to me when we, when we would fight from our very, very first fights, my husband would say, Hey, sweet lady, what's really going on? Like mid fight, he would say this to me. Now, I'll be honest, for the first few years of marriage, I would envision like taking a fork and just shoving it right into his neck, you know, like every time he steps (laughs) out. Because I'm not sweet. No one's ever called me sweet. You know how some girls get called sweet? I never got called sweet. He's the only person that's ever called me that. And when we fight, I'm not a lady. So it never felt like an apt description. (laughs) But at some point, I realized, sanctifications. that he was speaking something over me. He was speaking something over us in that moment. Um, He was saying, remember we are gentle together, right? Remember that we love one another. He was echoing those those beautiful words that we use in the book of Common Prayer when we do um, a wedding, when we marry people, that we say that God created marriage and intended it for our mutual joy. My husband was imputing that over us in that moment. So, when we hear and believe the good news that Jesus Christ is our righteousness, that all of our human efforts are for naught, I mean, the relief and the freedom and the grace and the joy that comes out of that is almost too much for me to bear. So put more succinctly, when we learn that Jesus loved our sorry asses enough to die on our behalf, I mean, that's, that's what makes a Christian Christian, right? That's not something we should run from. That's something that we step into every day. So um, this is BJ Miller. Some of you guys may have heard about him. He's having a big moment right now because he's changing the way that people die. So he's changing how we do hospice. Um, There's a fantastic article about him in the New York Times. If if y'all are preachers, there's like eight sermons (laughs) in the one article. But there was this one part of the story, of his story, that I could not get out of my head. So his journey into being this innovator in the way that people die began with personal tragedy. Um, when B.J. Miller was in college, there was an accident. He and some buddies had been uh, up late, really late, like 4 a.m. late one night, drinking. And they decided to scale a commuter train. So B.J. went first, and he was electrocuted instantly. This article said that 11,000 volts of electricity ran through his arms and his legs. So immediately, both legs were amputated, but the arm took a while for whatever reason. And since Miller was on a burn unit, and I did not know this, he had not had any contact with visitors because burn units have to be sterile environments. (laughs) But on the morning that Miller's arm was going to be amputated just below the elbow, A dozen friends and family members packed into a 10-foot-long corridor between the burn unit and the elevator just to catch a glimpse of him as he was rolled into surgery. I hope your church feels like that. Every time I read this, I think, I hope your church feels like that. They all dared to show up, Miller remembers thinking. He said, they all dared to look at me. They were proving that I was lovable, even when I couldn't see it. This is what imputation looks like. God looks at this messy, sinful lot of people and says, let's make them a city on a hill so that my light can shine through them. God sees a blind man, a sick man, a dying girl, a dead Lazarus, and says, you have been made well through me. He sees a lost coin, a lost lamb, our crazy prodigal souls, and says, I will impute righteousness to you. I will love you to the point of my death. I will die in your place. You will be righteous through me. So I could have chosen any number of terms to talk about with you this morning, but I chose these three, low anthropology, sanctification, and imputation for one very real reason. They have helped me so much. They have given me a language that I needed. The suffering that I feel in this world, I know is God at work in my heart for reasons I can neither understand nor explain. And speaking of things I cannot explain, I cannot believe that God saw me, a sinner, a helpless, hopeless sinner, and said, that's my girl. I will forgive her. I will impute righteousness to her. I will be her living water. I will be love for her worst self. The thing that pulled me in about the theology that I was hearing was that they gave me words for concepts (laughs) that I've always known, right, but never really knew existed, right, never really heard named out loud in that way. We are sinners in the sight of our Heavenly Father, and yet we have been saved by His Son, His beloved, His sacrifice on our behalf, which makes us righteous. It is totally offensive. I understand why all these people hate this, but it's still true. Hate it or love it, we are a low people. We find sanctification through suffering, and Jesus speaks righteousness on our behalf. I am the good shepherd, he tells us in John chapter 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, so we aren't big on any talks with um, some showy to-do list. Um, to-do lists seem to make us anxious and <laughs> Um But I want to tell you that these words belong to you, right? Like let them edify you and move you. Like that's my prayer for this talk. Um, these are your words. David Zoll often says that we are not prescriptive but descriptive. I love that. In other words, we are not here to tell you what to do. We are here to name the specific reality of your life, of all our lives, and God's mercy as it exists in the midst of that. So I have no application to offer. I only have the truth of Jesus that has saved me from myself. And I know that that is enough. Amen. Thank Thank y'all.